I haven't done this in a while. And what I noticed was my robes, I haven't worn my robes in a while either and done bowing. So I was kind of twisted up in them. I have a scratchy throat and um, that's not going to go away over the next 40 minutes. Kayla <laughs> Roshi asked me to talk about my work and about my practice. And each of those could really be, you know, a Dharma talk in and of itself. My, my job for the last 28 years has been working with people experiencing homelessness. And I've had a, a wide range of roles there, but I've been um, senior management for the last 15 years. I have, though, over that period of time also listened to a lot of sessions with clients. I teach a particular counseling style and so our staff, and it's it's not just our counseling style, it's international. And one of the ways you build skill is by recording sessions with clients and then getting coaching. And I've been doing that for Gosh, a long time. And so I've listened to thousands of sessions. I've listened not only to our sessions um, at Search, but I've listened to sessions with veterans through the VA Central Texas. I've listened to sessions in emergency rooms in Georgia with behavioral health specialists for people coming in um, stoned or high. And um, more recently, I've also been listening to sessions of nurses um, from UT Nursing here in town who are working with delivering HIV prevention interventions with homeless youth. So I listen to a lot of different kinds of sessions. So I'm not just an administrator who's really kind of out of touch with what's happening with our clients. I hear a lot of it. And um, there are a lot of positive stories I could tell you. Our, our community is a rock star nationally. And our CEO was even interviewed by the BBC recently and by Swiss TV. So we're, we're a lead agency um, in this city, and we've done a bang-up job. I would say when I first started at Search 28 years ago this month, the homeless count at any point in time on the street was over 10,000 people. Um, and that was a RAND study that had been done. And now we're typically around 3,300. Um, but in my role, I always want things to be better. I see the areas where we're not so successful and or where clients aren't thriving, and I want us to do better. So that's, I'm going to tell you some stories, but I want you to know that they're not necessarily representative of everybody who's experiencing homelessness. But it's the it's that segment that I've really focused on, um, particularly I would say over the last five or six years. 
and I'm going to try and weave that into a talk about no self. When I was in graduate school, um, my first semester, every social worker has to take this class, whether it's undergraduate or graduate. It's called Human Behavior in the Social Environment. And I remember having disagreements with my professor about it. I did not believe in that we were shaped, that we were changed by our culture, by what was going on around us. I definitely had a fixed, permanent view of self. That, you know, there was this part of me that wasn't ever going to change. It was who I was and all this other nonsense about something impacting me and changing me. I did not believe in it. Um, yeah, I didn't. Fortunately, he and I became really good friends, and and he could tolerate that. So even though a, a, a huge component of Mahayana Buddhism is this idea of no self, no fixed, permanent, abiding self, there's still this part of me that wants to, you know, cling to but there really is. <laughs> and I've been even thinking so much the last couple of weeks about even like, where did that come from? You know, was it like the ancient Hebrews 5,000 years ago? Was it the Greeks? Were the Sumerians? Where did we get that, that notion? Um, is it only Western culture? Meaning like, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea, and I, but I know it's really hard to get rid of that notion. Um, the piece that I've focused on at work for the past five or six years has really been on the context in which we live our lives, the context in which our clients live their lives. It's part of a model that is an evidence-based practice that um, I've been, we've been using researchers all over the globe use it. Um, I happen to know one of the developers, one of the originators of the model, and that's how I became exposed to it. It's called, um, the short version is Stages of Change, How People Change. And I think one piece that we have neglected over the years, and it, it's starting to get a little bit more traction, is this notion of what is the environment, what is the situation, you know, what's somebody's background? Like, what is the context in which somebody's currently living? And so in terms of people living on the street, what is that environment? And then if they were to move, say, into permanent housing, what would that environment be like? And how do we help them make that shift, make that change, and be successful? Um, there was an article in the Chronicle probably about two months ago, it was, and those of us who read it at work said this was the best article we've ever read on homelessness. And one of our staff was photographed and I, I didn't go back and read it, but what stood out for me was um, this notion of community and how people living in these encampments, you know, you can live alone on the street and it's a pretty dangerous thing to do. If you're living on the street, you're going to get robbed. You're going to get beaten up. Um, 
Yeah. And if that doesn't get you, the mosquitoes or ants are going to try. Somebody told me, one of our clients said, I maybe didn't tell me, but maybe I heard it on a recording, was that if you weren't using by the when you got became homeless, you surely would be using after a little while. And so being in these encampments in these little tent cities, and ours are small compared to Los Angeles or other communities, San Francisco, but it's a it's a place of safety. And about so in our most recent count at our agency, 73% of the people that we work with are males. And about three quarters of them are black males. And so, you know, what does it take to be a male and become homeless and not have anybody that you either feel comfortable asking for help or, you know, you've burned a lot of bridges? And so to have a community there, even if it's so the, the, the encampments sort of fall into that categories depending on your drug of choice. If you drink alcohol, the alcoholics like to have their own little encampment. Sometimes the crack cocaine people can hang with them too. Um, but then there's other ones, like the one closest to our office, which is really um, smoking weed and kush, kush being synthetic marijuana. But again, I think the piece I want to emphasize is there is this community and knowing that people have your back and that if they've got something, they're going to generally share it with you and you're going to share with them. And that's really important. Most of the people living on the streets and females get to go to the shelters usually, and there's a male shelter, but um, usually the, the, the women have children with them and they go to Star Hope or Salvation Army. So when I'm talking about people on the street, I'm generally talking about males almost exclusively. Most of them are disabled. Um, so we use a standardized assessment in all of our permanent supportive housing. In order to get into housing, permanent housing that's subsidized with case management, you have to have been on the street for at least a year and be able to document that. So it either has to be us or some other social service agency who can verify that you have been on the street and they know you've been there for a long time. The second way to get the thing that you have to produce in order to get off the street is you have to document that you're disabled to get into permanent supportive housing. And that's not just going into the dock today, like Royce couldn't just walk in and say, I'm disabled. And substance use is not a disability. Um, so you have to have some record, you have to be able to produce records from your physician that you are disabled and what that diagnosis is and that it hasn't been able to be sufficiently treated. Some of you may know the bell-shaped curve, mm -hmm. right? So in the middle of the bell curve is 50. So 50, the score kind of like 50. General population, half of them fall on this side looking from your, from your direction. And the other side is not so good. So we look at um, health, physical health and mental health using a standardized assessment when people actually do get into housing. 
So baseline is what we do. We baseline them. Everybody in this room, most of you in this room, um, would be over here, like not 50, but maybe 60, 65. If you work out a lot, you might be a little higher. People coming in into our housing programs are generally in the low 40s, in the 30s, in the 20s, and we have some even in the teens. So they're pretty sick. Um, there's a, a guy we worked with, his name's Randy, and we met him on the street, our outreach teams did, and he said he wanted to get housing. So we got him into housing. It took a little while, but we got him into housing. But he would not sleep and, and really hang out in his unit. He hung with three other guys down by U of H downtown, and they all drank heavily. So they'd start early in the morning. They'd drink late, late at night. And, you know, you get a bunch of really drunk guys. You know, one person says the wrong thing, looks at you the wrong way, and beating each other up. And But it was his community. It was his family of sorts. Even if they beat each other up. I mean, you would look at his body, he was just all banged up, you know, broken bones still. and But gradually, and I don't know what it took to get him to start staying in the, in the apartment. Um, it could have been really bad weather, um, but he started sleeping there at least at night. And his case manager knew he was going to be going out during the day, going back to his buddies, and they were going to start drinking. So she scheduled an appointment, what she thought was first thing in the morning to have meetings with him, case management, like nine o'clock in the morning. And then she wondered why he never showed up. Well, that was too late because his body started craving alcohol much earlier than that. And she finally got wised up to it. And he got to the point where he was spending all of his nights there and starting to, he got sober, which he really wanted to do. And then I think it was probably about a year and a half ago, um, they hadn't seen him for a couple of days and didn't know what was going on. They found him in his unit. Um, yeah, he had died of alcohol poisoning. He had relapsed. And, and so there is this drug culture. Um, and I was, I was presenting at a UT um, Health had a substance use conference two weeks ago, and I was presenting at it. And just, um, you know, we talk about, you know, nobody ever wants to become an addict. And you think when you get on the streets, uh, you know, if everybody else is using, you think you're not going to get addicted. And, and it really does happen. And um, so asking, you know, then when people, when we try and get them into apartments, um, you know, they're leaving that community, but they're also leave, leaving that drug community. And if you're used to living on the streets, there's a lot of stimuli. You know, you've got sounds and smells and noise and noise and activity. And the, then you move into an apartment. It could be an apartment class C or D, you know, where they take people who have poor rental histories and 
you know, it's two or three bus routes away from anywhere. Or it can be one of these, like New Hope Housing has done a beautiful job um, building out single room occupancy apartments. They're smaller than a studio apartment, but they're nice. They're not like those SROs in New York City in the 50s and 60s that were just these little rabbit warren, rat infested, one bathroom down the hall places. These are very nice. But still, somebody moves in, they have no money. We give them a bed. Um, there's a refrigerator. We give them a couple of dishes, a little bit of food, um, toilet paper. But they don't have much. And they have no money, no TV, no radio. Many of them have no phone. And you go into this apartment, and how do you build a life? How do you even begin to build a life? Um, when this community that you had is out on the street. And it takes a while. Um, there was a book, my first social work class I took at UT Austin back, I think, in 73. One of our required texts was about these SRO units. And the title of the book was called Communities of the Alone. And I think that is how a lot of the clients feel. When you're using, you're a little lubed up. And if you're a guy and you may not have very good social skills, maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. You move into this place and how do you meet people? And yet what you'd see as you walk out the door and over at the bus stop, there's a bunch of guys over there and you see that they're smoking kush, you know? So guess what? You're going to go out there and smoke kush with them. There's an instant community. We, um, people die there, of course, because their health is pretty bad. And we work really closely with Baylor. Um, and many of our, our programs, our programs are integrated primary behavioral health in addition to case management, clinical case management. But people die and we do these memorial services. We offer memorial services. And we did one recently, probably three months ago. And one of the clients said, yeah, this is where people come to die. So, you know, this shifting, this building community with people who are not well, many of whom have substance use disorders, is a real challenge. Um, I think about, you know, these, the impact that these encampments have on people. It would be nice if they didn't have to wind up on the street and then sort of get impacted by what's going on in that community, those communities. I listened to a podcast yesterday morning. Um, there's a, a new book out called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. So I've listened to the podcast twice. It's really great. And I've already ordered the book. I mean, it's a, it's a huge question for me about 
you know, becoming homeless, about what it is to be male in this culture, how all these causes and conditions come together um, for males in general and then for those who become homeless. Um, so we're so individualistic and and yet when I tell you these stories, I think you begin to see how culture and situations, and I begin to see it, how it, we are so shaped by and impacted by it and affected by it. But it's easier to think about that for other people than it is to think about that for me, you know, and how I am shaped by, you know, culture and and politics and the weather and um, I studied a little bit of Martin Heidegger over the years, and he talks about us being thrown, about thrownness, that we are thrown into our lives, into these particular cultures, and it has an impact on us. We don't live in isolation. We're not this self, this locked self in isolation. I read this book recently. Oh my gosh, I've been reading so many books. Galen <laughs> Roshi and I started studying, I think 16 months ago, um, Vasubandhu and the Yogacara tradition. And, um, and then she was traveling and then she had a fall. And we paused our training for a while, our work for a while. So I still tried to stumble along um, without her very unsuccessfully. <laughs> but I didn't want her to think since she had made this offer, you know, I didn't want to think I was just, you know, that I was just giving up on it and I wasn't going to do anything until she got, you know, back in the saddle, so to speak. Um, so I, I continued to try and um, failed abysmally. And I thought, okay, I'm going to find an easier version of 30 verses in Vasubandhu. Okay, so those of you who don't know me, I've been a Buddhist practitioner since the late 80s. So I've been at this for a while, but it, this was still hard. So I got this other book and I read like 24 pages. I thought, okay, this is still too hard. I got another book. I made 60 pages into it and had to give it up because it was still too darn hard. Um, so fortunately, we, we, we were able to finish but I did read a book that was really helpful. Um, it was called, it was by Jay Garfield, and he's a, a philosophy professor, but he's a, his primary focus is Buddhist philosophy. And so he wrote this book. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to laugh and spill this on myself. <laughs> There's this guy, Evan Thompson who's also a Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist professor. And he published a book recently. I can't remember the name of it. And, and so it had a big, you know, lots of people read it. And, and so the publisher came to Jay Garfield, not that publisher, but another publisher came to Jay Garfield and was like, hey, look, we want you to do something like Evan Thompson did, <laughs> write, write a book. Um, because, <clears throat> you know, publishing houses need, you know, they need to be competitive. 
So it's a it's a good book. Um, I, I didn't read about the middle three chapters because it got in over my head again. But it's called Losing Ourselves, Learning to Live Without a Self. So if you decide to pick it up, you know, I give you permission to skip that middle part if you want. <laughs> the back of it was really were most valuable to me. Um, so I think it's about um, the, you know, really hearing from many different directions and and beginning to tie it to my work that I do see that we are these conditioned beings. And where we get in trouble is this belief that there's this core self, this fixed, permanent, abiding self. And, and what would it be like um, if we if we saw it differently? I think it was Galen Roshi. Um, who over the years maybe has said things like, this thought arose or this thought came to mind. I don't know whether it's you did or not, but I'm attributing it to you. I'm giving you credit. <laughs> and I don't intentionally try to copy people, although recently I was trying to copy Hakuin. Um, but, but several years ago, I heard myself say to other people, like, well, this thought arose. And I was like, what? Why am I talking like that? That's so not like me. And, um, or this thought came to mind. And, and so I really, um, I took a look at it. And I, I thought, you know what? This feels right. It feels honest. Because there are times, you know, where, you know, there's a sound outside and a song comes to mind. And it's not like I thought about this song because I didn't. You know, something happened outside in the environment. There was a smell. There was something on the wind, you know, that had me think about Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. and. And so I think that was really um, an opening for me is beginning to see how there are all these, what I wrote in my notes was perturbation. It's a word that um, a Chilean biologist used to use. Um, there's a guy, Mark Epstein, a psychiatrist who wrote a book, in fact, called Thoughts Without a Thinker. I think you've read that, Louise. I've not, but yeah. So that, and for me, that's really a demonstration of how we really are impacted and changed by um, everything around us. So then what is this? aspect that thinks I'm this self. So there's a self, but there is something. And um, the distinction Jay Garfield has made is here's this notion that we have this self, the self that we have to protect, the self that me, mine, whatever. And then there is, but there that doesn't exist, some sort of made-up fantasy. And then there is, though, this person, 
like there's a chair and there's a dog and there's this person, different from chairs and dogs, but a person. Um, and we do have agency. I was um, reading something, um, I think it was Garfield, last night, and although it may have been Thich Nhat Hanh, no, I think it was Garfield. He was talking about us being co-constituted, I want to say constituated, but it's constituted. How does that sound? Co-constituted. And I thought that makes sense to me, that I'm being constituted by my tank. Give me this iced tea, the ice of which is long gone. And my body's being co-constituted, so my body's changing. I'm being changed by being in this room with all of you. And maybe some of you, if you're being in the room here, you're probably being changed a little bit by me. Either you might be leaning back, being upright, leaning forward. So how do we how do we begin to sort of shift our perspective a little bit and you know notice when this idea, this concept of self arises, this self that we feel like we have to protect, that we have to take care of. I'm not saying we don't have to take care of this person, this body, but this self, this made up kind of thing. How do we begin to practice so that um, that notion maybe becomes a little softer, a little less solid. Um, I think about, I imagine, if I'd ever done monastic practice, that that's part of what happens there, is you notice the self coming up. You have a certain feeling of like, dislike. I don't want to do this. I hate these people. Um, I hate Buddhism all that kind of stuff. And you have these sensations in your body about it, a lot of emotion. And, and but you can't go anywhere unless you take the, the long hike. <laughs> it's a private joke. Um, so those kind of places where we can't, um, where we intentionally put ourselves into a place that we don't want to escape, but we do at times. You know, retreat sensations also have a, give us an opportunity to do that on a less threatening scale. Readings like me with Vasubandhu, uh, listening to Dharma talks, I think the best thing about the pandemic for me was just being able to hear so many Dharma talks from so many different places. There are online courses now. And so I have been in this course um, trying to understand Yogacara better and no self um, that John Dunn has done. It's available through Tricycle. Um, I'm going to be doing one on um, participate, I mean, attending one on dependent arising. I've done some others too, but you know, I'm limited by money and by time. 
There are podcasts out there that are some, some of them are really good. And so really throwing ourselves into the teachings um, and really hearing, thank you, Galen Roshi, different voices, different perspectives, different, you know, whether it's a Tibetan perspective or if it's, you know, a Theravadan perspective, Vietnamese, then it doesn't, yeah. We have openings and awakenings that help us. And I think also, how do we really train ourselves to begin to see and notice when the self comes up? I was, when I was sitting Zazen this morning, I thought, you know, Shikantaza is, one piece of it is really dropping away body and mind. So it's a, it's a dropping away. But if you do, you know, the mindfulness practices from the, the Pali Canon, the, the ancient Buddhist scriptures, and I think there are like five or six different mindfulness sutras. Um, and I'm not talking about the mass market version of mindfulness that's out there. I'm talking about the Buddhist version of mindfulness. You know, it really is a deep practice and one that I've given Dharma talks on before. And so really mindfulness of body. How's your body responding to particular situations? The sensations that are coming up. Um, you know, there's a there's this young woman at work. Oh, I wasn't going to say it was a woman. Anyway, um, it's been the bane of my existence for the last three years there. And I, so this notion of self has been with me a lot. And, and really, you know, because I've done a lot of mindfulness practice, you know, I can feel when self comes up and, and really how do I work with that? So there's mindfulness of body, mindfulness of these sensations, feelings in our body, mindfulness of kind of our state of mind and the objects of mind. So that's been incredibly helpful. I've also um, um, I also was trying to fall back on Hakuin. So Hakuin, the story about him is he's the monk or the priest, anyway, he's got a temple, ancient Japan, the pregnant young woman. And, you know, the parents who said, you know, she said that you're the father of this baby, you know, and he says, uh, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, I don't know if a self even came up for him, but he just said, is that so? And then when the truth came out, so anyway, before that, the baby's born and the, the family brings the baby to him. And I imagine this guy just falls head over heels in love with this baby. And then the young boy or the girl, somebody confesses. And then the parents realize, oh, we made a mistake. They come take the baby away. Hakuin, is that so? So I kept thinking maybe I could channel Hakuin with this person at work. But then I just realized it has to be authentic. It has to come from me. You know, it's got to be my voice. It can't be Hakuin's voice. It's got to come from this person. Um, so, you know, the mindfulness piece is one piece. The other piece, though, is what do I fall back on? 
And so for me, my fallback is always the Buddhist ethics. And there's so many different places where we can really read and study those. I remember the very first retreat that uh, Tenshin Roshi did here, maybe in 94, maybe earlier, was on the Noble Eightfold Path. When he was the last Dharma talk he gave here the day after Reb's, I mean, the day after um, Yazan's funeral, Reb talked about the Paramitas. He talked specifically about Don Paramita throughout that whole Dharma talk. So we have, you know, we have the Eightfold Path, we have the Paramitas, we have the Precepts, we have Brahma Baharas, and I'm sure there's a ton more in there. So those are things that we can really study and, and fall back on when we find ourselves triggered, when this self comes up. Um, yeah. And... That's what I'm trying to do. There's a, in closing, there's a, a woman, she was a, she's a British woman, but she, she's conditioned her spine. <laughs> she was born in 43 in the UK, and um, that was a long time ago. And when she was 20, she moved to, I don't know, either northern India or um, Tibet. And she's been a, a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner ever since. When she moved there, she moved into a monastery with 100 boys, um, young males, too, young males and boys. She was the only female because females, yeah, I don't know why. But um, then she, so some of you may have read her works or read about her name's um, Tenzin Palmo. And she lived in a cave way up in the Himalayas and um, was 10 by 6. She lived there for 12 years. Three of those were in silent retreat. And um, she wrote, we have to stop clinging to the conditioned path and learn to be open to the unconditioned path. Our fundamental problems are our ignorance and ego grasping. We grasp at our identity as being our personality, memories, opinions, judgments, hopes, fears, chattering away, all revolving around this me, 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 me. And we believe that that self is actually a solid, unchanging entity that sets us apart from all other entities out there. This creates the idea of an unchanging permanent self at the center of our being, which we have to satisfy and protect. This is an illusion. Who am I? Is thus the central question of Buddhism. Do you see? Do you see? 